Section two of Stories by English Authors, London, by Various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Black Poodle by F. Anstey, Part One. I have set myself the task of relating, in the course of this story, without suppressing or altering a single detail, the most painful and humiliating episode of my life. I do this not because it will give me the least pleasure, but simply because it affords me an opportunity of extenuating myself, which has hitherto been wholly denied to me. As a general rule, I am quite aware that to publish a lengthy explanation of one's conduct in any questionable transaction is not the best means of recovering a lost reputation. But in my own case there is one to whom I shall never more be permitted to justify by word of mouth, even if I found myself able to attempt it. And as she could not possibly think worse of me than she does at present, I write this, knowing it can do me no harm, and faintly hoping that it may come to her notice and suggest a doubt whether I am quite so unscrupulous a villain so consummate a hypocrite as i have been forced to appear in her eyes the bare chance of such a result makes me perfectly indifferent to all else i cheerfully expose to the derision of the whole reading world the story of my weakness and my shame since by doing so i may possibly rehabilitate myself somewhat in the good opinion of one person Having said so much, I will begin my confession without further delay. My name is Algernon Weatherhead, and I may add that I am in one of the government departments, that I am an only son, and live at home with my mother. We had had a house at Hammersmith until just before the period covered by this history, when, our lease expiring, my mother decided that my health required country air at the close of the day, and so we took a desirable villa residence on one of the many new building estates which have lately sprung up in such profusion in the home counties. We have called it Wisteria Villa. It is a pretty little place, the last of a row of detached villas, each with its tiny rustic carriage-gate and gravel sweep in front, and lawn enough for a tennis-court behind, which lines the road leading over the hill to the railway station. I could certainly have wished that our landlord, shortly after giving us the agreement, could have found some other place to hang himself in than one of our attics, for the consequence was that a housemaid left us in violent hysterics about every two months, having learned the tragedy from the tradespeople, and naturally seen a something immediately afterward. Still, it is a pleasant house, and I can now almost forgive the landlord for what I shall always consider an act of gross selfishness on his part. In the country, even so near town, a next-door neighbor is something more than a mere numeral. He is a possible acquaintance, who will at least consider a newcomer as worth the experiment of a call. I soon knew that Shutter Garden, 
the next house to our own, was occupied by a Colonel Curry, a retired Indian officer, and often, as across the low boundary wall I caught a glimpse of a graceful girlish figure flitting about among the rose-bushes in the neighbouring garden, I would lose myself in pleasant anticipations of a time not too far distant, when the wall which separated us would be, metaphorically, levelled. I remember, ah, how vividly, the thrill of excitement with which I heard from my mother, on returning from town one evening, that the Curries had called, and seemed disposed to be all that was neighbourly and kind. I remember, too, the Sunday afternoon on which I returned their call, alone, as my mother had already done so during the week. I was standing on the steps of the Colonel's villa, waiting for the door to open, when I was startled by a furious snarling and yapping behind, and, looking round, discovered a large poodle in the act of making for my legs. He was a coal-black poodle, with half of his right ear gone, and absurd little thick moustaches at the end of his nose. He was shaved in the sham-lion fashion, which is considered, for some mysterious reason, to improve a poodle, but the barber had left sundry little tufts of hair, which studded his haunches capriciously. I could not help being reminded, as I looked at him, of another black poodle, which Faust entertained for a short time, with unhappy results, and I thought that a very moderate degree of incantation would be enough to bring the fiend out of this brute. He made me intensely uncomfortable, for I am of a slightly nervous temperament, with a constitutional horror of dogs, and a liability to attacks of diffidence on performing the ordinary social rites under the most favourable conditions. And certainly the consciousness that a strange and apparently savage dog was engaged in worrying the heels of my boots was the reverse of reassuring. The Curry family received me with all possible kindness. "'So charmed to make your acquaintance, Mr. Weatherhead,' said Mrs. Curry, as I shook hands. "'I see,' she added pleasantly, "'You've brought the doggy in with you.' "'As a matter of fact, I had brought the doggy in at the ends of my coat-tails, "'but it was evidently no unusual occurrence for visitors to appear in this undignified manner, "'for she detached him quite as a matter of course, "'and as soon as I was sufficiently collected we fell into conversation. "'I discovered that the Colonel and his wife were childless.' and the slender willowy figure I had seen across the garden wall was that of Lillian Roseblade, their niece and adopted daughter. She came into the room shortly afterward, and I felt, as I went through the form of an introduction, that her sweet, fresh face, shaded by soft masses of dusky brown hair, more than justified all the dreamy hopes and fancies with which I had looked forward to that moment. She talked to me in a pretty, confidential, appealing way, which I have heard her dearest friends censure as childish and affected. But I thought then that her manner had an indescribable charm and fascination about it, 
and the memory of it makes my heart ache now with a pang that is not all pain. Even before the colonel made his appearance, I had begun to see that my enemy, the poodle, occupied an exceptional position in that household. It was abundantly clear by the time I took my leave. He seemed to be the centre of their domestic system, and even lovely Lillian revolved contentedly around him as a kind of satellite. He could do no wrong in his owner's eyes. His prejudices, and he was a narrow-minded animal, were rigorously respected, and all domestic arrangements were made with a primary view to his convenience. I may be wrong, but I cannot think that it is wise to put any poodle upon such a pedestal as that. How this one in particular, as ordinary a quadruped as ever breathed, had contrived to impose thus upon his infatuated proprietors, I never could understand, but so it was. He even engrossed the chief part of the conversation, which, after any lull, seemed to veer round to him by a sort of natural law. I had to endure a long biographical sketch of him, what a society paper would call an anecdotal photo, and each fresh anecdote seemed to me to exhibit the depraved malignity of the beast in a more glaring light, and render the doting admiration of the family more astounding than ever. "'Did you tell Mr. Weatherhead, Lily, about Bingo?' Bingo was the poodle's preposterous name. "'And Tax?' "'No. Oh, I must tell him that. It'll make him laugh. "'Tax is our gardener down in the village. Do you know Tax?' "'Well, Tax was up here the other day, nailing up some trellis work at the top of a ladder, "'and all the time there was Master Bingo sitting quietly at the foot of it, looking on.' wouldn't leave it on any account tax said he was quite company for him well at last when tax had finished and was coming down what do you think that rascal there did just sneaked quietly up behind and nipped him in both calves and ran off been looking out for that the whole time <laughs> deep that eh I agreed with an inward shudder that it was very deep, thinking privately that if this was a specimen of Bingo's usual treatment of the natives, it would be odd if he did not find himself still deeper before, probably just before, he died. Poor faithful old doggy, murmured Mrs. Curry. He thought Tax was a nasty burglar, didn't he? He wasn't going to see Master robbed, was he? "'Capital house-dog, sir,' struck in the colonel. "'Gad, I shall never forget how he made poor Heavisides run for it the other day. "'Ever met Heavisides of the Bombay Fusiliers? "'Well, Heavisides was staying here, and the dog met him one morning, "'as he was coming down from the bathroom. "'Didn't recognize him in pajamas and a dressing-gown, of course, and made at him.' He kept poor old Heavisides outside the landing window, on top of the cistern, for a quarter of an hour, till I had to come and raise the siege. Such were the stories of that abandoned dog's blunder-headed ferocity, to which I was forced to listen, 
while all the time the brute sat opposite me on the hearthrug blinking at me from under his shaggy mane with his evil bleared eyes and deliberating where he would have me when i rose to go this was the beginning of an intimacy which soon displaced all ceremony it was very pleasant to go in there after dinner even to sit with the colonel over his claret and hear more stories about bingo for afterward i could go into the pretty drawing-room and take my tea from lillian's hands and listen while she played schubert to us in the summer twilight the poodle was always in the way to be sure but even his ugly black head seemed to lose some of its ugliness and ferocity when lillian laid her pretty hand on it on the whole i think that the curry family were well disposed toward me the colonel considering me as a harmless specimen of the average eligible young man which i certainly was and mrs curry showing me favour for my mother's sake for whom she had taken a strong liking as for lillian i believed i saw that she soon suspected the state of my feelings toward her and was not displeased by it i looked forward with some hopefulness to a day when i could declare myself with no fear of a repulse but it was a serious obstacle in my path that i could not secure bingo's good opinion on any terms the family would often lament this pathetically themselves you see mrs curry would observe in apology bingo is a dog that does not attach himself easily to strangers though for that matter i thought he was unpleasantly ready to attach himself to me i did try hard to conciliate him i brought him propitiatory buns which was weak and ineffectual as he ate them with avidity and hated me as bitterly as ever for he had conceived from the first a profound contempt for me and a distrust which no blandishments of mine could remove looking back now i am inclined to think it was a prophetic instinct that warned him of what was to come upon him through my instrumentality only his approbation was wanting to establish for me a firm footing with the curries and perhaps determine lillian's wavering heart in my direction but though i wooed that inflexible poodle with an assiduity i blush to remember he remained obstinately firm still day by day lillian's treatment of me was more encouraging day by day i gained in the esteem of her uncle and aunt i began to hope that soon i should be able to disregard canine influence altogether now there was one inconvenience about our villa besides its flavour of suicide which it is necessary to mention here by common consent all the cats of the neighbourhood had selected our garden for their evening reunions i fancy that a tortoise-shell kitchen cat of ours must have been a sort of leader of local feline society i know she was at home with music and recitations on most evenings my poor mother found this to interfere with her after-dinner nap and no wonder for if a cohort of ghosts had been shrieking and squealing as calpurnia puts it in our back garden or it had been fitted up as a creche for a nursery of goblin infants in the agonies of teething 
the noise could not possibly have been more unearthly. We sought for some means of getting rid of the nuisance. There was poison, of course, but we thought it would have an invidious appearance, and even lead to legal difficulties, if each dawn were to discover an assortment of cats expiring in hideous convulsions in various parts of the same garden. Firearms, too, were open to objection, and would scarcely assist my mother's slumbers, so for some time we were at a loss for a remedy. At last, one day, walking down the strand, I chanced to see, in an evil hour, what struck me as the very thing. It was an air-gun of superior construction, displayed in a gunsmith's window. I went in at once, purchased it, and took it home in triumph. It would be noiseless, and would reduce the local average of cats without scandal. One or two examples, and feline fashion would soon migrate to a more secluded spot. I lost no time in putting this to the proof. That same evening I lay in wait after dusk at the study window, protecting my mother's repose. As soon as I heard the long-drawn wail, the preliminary sputter, and the wild stampede that followed, I let fly in the direction of the sound. I suppose I must have something of the national sporting instinct in me, for my blood was tingling with excitement. But the feline constitution assimilates lead without serious inconvenience, and I began to fear that no trophy would remain to bear witness to my marksmanship. But all at once I made out a dark, indistinct form, slinking in from behind the bushes. I waited till it crossed a belt of light which streamed from the back kitchen below me, and then I took careful aim and pulled the trigger. This time at least I had not failed. There was a smothered yell, a rustle, and then silence again. I ran out with the calm pride of a successful revenge to bring in the body of my victim, and I found underneath a laurel no predatory tomcat, but, as the discerning reader will no doubt have foreseen long since, the quivering carcass of the colonel's black poodle. I intend to set down here the exact unvarnished truth, and I confess that at first, when I knew what I had done, I was not sorry. I was quite innocent of any intention of doing it, but I felt no regret. I even laughed, madman that I was, at the thought that there was the end of bingo, at all events. That impediment was removed. My weary task of conciliation was over forever. But soon the reaction came. I realized the tremendous nature of my deed, and shuddered. I had done that which might banish me from Lillian's side for ever. All unwittingly I had slaughtered a kind of sacred beast, the animal around which the Curry household had wreathed their choicest affections. How was I to break it to them? Should I send Bingo in with a card tied to his neck and my regrets and compliments? That was too much like a present of game. Ought I not to carry him in myself? I would wreathe him in the best crepe. I would put on black for him, 
the curries would hardly consider a taper and a white sheet or sackcloth and ashes an excessive form of atonement but i could not grovel to quite such an abject extent i wondered what the colonel would say simple and hearty as a general rule he had a hot temper on occasions and it made me ill as i thought would he and worse still would lillian believe it was really an accident they knew what an interest i had in silencing the deceased poodle would they believe the simple truth i vowed that they should believe me my genuine remorse and the absence of all concealment on my part would speak powerfully for me i would choose a favourable time for my confession that very evening i would tell all still i shrank from the duty before me and as i knelt down sorrowfully by the dead form and respectfully composed his stiffening limbs i thought that it was unjust of fate to place a well-meaning man whose nerves were not of iron in such a position then to my horror i heard a well-known ringing tramp on the road outside and smelled the peculiar fragrance of a burmese cheroot it was the colonel himself who had been taking out the doomed bingo for his usual evening run i don't know how it was exactly but a sudden panic came over me i held my breath and tried to crouch down unseen behind the laurels but he had seen me and came over at once to speak to me across the hedge he stood there not two yards from his favourite's body fortunately it was unusually dark that evening ha ah, there you are eh he began heartily don't rise my boy don't rise i was trying to put myself in front of the poodle and did not rise at least only my hair did you're out late ain't you he went on laying out your garden hey i could not tell him that i was laying out his poodle my voice shook as with a guilty confusion that was veiled by the dusk i said it was a fine evening which it was not cloudy sir said the colonel cloudy rain before morning i think by the way have you seen anything of bingo in here this was the turning point what i ought to have done was to say mournfully yes i'm sorry to say i've had a most unfortunate accident with him here he is the fact is i'm afraid i've shot him but i couldn't i could have told him at my own time in a prepared form of words but not then i felt i must use all my wits to gain time and fence with the questions why i said with a leaden airiness he hasn't given you the slip has he never did such a thing in his life said the colonel warmly he rushed off after a rat or a frog or something a few minutes ago and as i stopped to light another cheroot i lost sight of him i thought i saw him slip in under your gate but i've been calling him from the front there and he won't come out no and he never would come out any more but the colonel must not be told that just yet i temporized again if i said unsteadily if he had slipped in under the gate i should have seen him 
perhaps he took it into his head to run home oh i shall find him on the doorstep i expect the knowing old scamp why what do you think was the last thing he did now i could have given him the very latest intelligence but i dared not however it was altogether too ghastly to kneel there and laugh at anecdotes of bingo told across bingo's dead body i could not stand that listen i said suddenly wasn't that his bark there again it seems to come from the front of your house don't you think well said the colonel i'll go and fasten him up before he's off again how your teeth are chattering you've caught a chill man go indoors at once and if you feel equal to it look in half an hour later about grog time and i'll tell you all about it compliments to your mother don't forget about grog time i had got rid of him at last and i wiped my forehead gasping with relief i would go round in half an hour and then i should be prepared to make my melancholy announcement for even then i never thought of any other course until suddenly it flashed upon me with terrible clearness that my miserable shuffling by the hedge had made it impossible to tell the truth i had not told a direct lie to be sure but then i had given the colonel the impression that i had denied having seen the dog many people can appease their consciences by reflecting that whatever may be the effect their words produce they did contrive to steer clear of a downright lie i never quite knew where the distinction lay morally but there is that feeling i have it myself unfortunately prevarication has this drawback that if ever the truth comes to light the prevaricator is in just the same case as if he had lied to the most shameless extent and for a man to point out that the words he used contained no absolute falsehood will seldom restore confidence i might of course still tell the colonel of my misfortune and leave him to infer that it had happened after our interview but the poodle was fast becoming cold and stiff and they would most probably suspect the real time of the occurrence and then lillian would hear that i had told a string of falsehoods to her uncle over the dead body of their idolized bingo an act no doubt of abominable desecration of unspeakable profanity in her eyes if it would have been difficult before to prevail on her to accept a blood-stained hand it would be impossible after that no i had burned my ships i was cut off forever from the straightforward course that one moment of indecision had decided my conduct in spite of me i must go on with it now and keep up the deception at all hazards it was bitter i had always tried to preserve as many of the moral principles which had been instilled into me as can be conveniently retained in this grasping world and it had been my pride that roughly speaking i had never been guilty of an unmistakable falsehood but henceforth if i meant to win lillian that boast must be relinquished for ever i should have to lie now with all my might without limit or scruple 
to dissemble incessantly and wear a mask as the poet bun beautifully expressed it long ago over my hollow heart i felt all this keenly i did not think it was right but what was i to do after thinking all this out very carefully i decided that my only course was to bury the poor animal where he fell and say nothing about it with some vague idea of precaution i first took off the silver collar he wore and then hastily interred him with a garden trowel and succeeded in removing all traces of the disaster i fancy i felt a certain relief in the knowledge that there would now be no necessity to tell my pitiful story and risk the loss of my neighbour's esteem by and by i thought i would plant a rose-tree over his remains and some day as lillian and i in the noontide of our domestic bliss stood before it admiring its creamy luxuriance i might perhaps find the courage to confess that the tree owed some of that luxuriance to the long-lost bingo there was a touch of poetry in this idea that lightened my gloom for the moment i need scarcely say that i did not go round to shutter garden that evening i was not hardened enough for that yet my manner might betray me and so i very prudently stayed at home but that night my sleep was broken by frightful dreams i was perpetually trying to bury a great gaunt poodle which would persist in rising up through the damp mould as fast as i covered him up lillian and i were engaged and we were in church together on sunday and the poodle resisting all attempts to eject him forbade our bands with sepulchral barks it was our wedding day and at the critical moment the poodle leaped between us and swallowed the ring or we were at the wedding breakfast and bingo a grisly black skeleton with flaming eyes sat on the cake and would not allow lillian to cut it even the rose-tree fancy was reproduced in a distorted form the tree grew and every blossom contained a miniature bingo which barked and as i woke i was desperately trying to persuade the colonel that they were ordinary dog-roses i went up to the office next day with my gloomy secret gnawing my bosom and whatever i did the spectre of the murdered poodle rose before me for two days after that i dared not go near the curries until at last one evening after dinner i forced myself to call feeling that it was really not safe to keep away any longer my conscience smote me as i went in i put on an unconscious easy manner which was such a dismal failure that it was lucky for me that they were too much engrossed to notice it i never before saw a family so stricken down by a domestic misfortune as the group i found in the drawing-room making a dejected pretence of reading or working we talked at first and hollow talk it was on indifferent subjects till i could bear it no longer and plunged boldly into danger i don't see the dog i began i suppose you-you found him all right the other evening colonel 
I wondered, as I spoke, whether they would not notice the break in my voice. But they did not. Why, the fact is, said the colonel, heavily, gnawing his grey moustache, we've not heard anything of him since. He's... he's run off. Gone, Mr. Weatherhead, gone without a word, said Mrs. Curry plaintively, as if she thought the dog might at least have left an address. I wouldn't have believed it of him, said the colonel. It has completely knocked me over. Haven't been so cut up for years, the ungrateful rascal. Oh, uncle, pleaded Lillian, don't talk like that. Perhaps Bingo couldn't help it. Perhaps someone has sh sh shot him. Shot, cried the colonel angrily. By heaven, if I thought there was a villain on earth capable of shooting that poor inoffensive dog, I'd... Why, why should they shoot him, Lillian? Tell me that. I, I hope you won't let me hear you talk like that again. You don't think he's shot, eh, Weatherhead? I said, heaven forgive me, that I thought it highly improbable. He's not dead, cried Mrs. Curry. If he were dead, I should know it somehow. I'm sure I should. But I'm certain he's alive. Only last night I had such a beautiful dream about him. I thought he came back to us, Mr. Weatherhead, driving up in a handsome cab, and he was just the same as ever, only he wore blue spectacles, and the shaved part of him was painted a bright red, and I woke up with the joy. So, you know, it's sure to come true. It will be easily understood what torture conversations like these were to me, and how I hated myself as I sympathized and spoke encouraging words concerning the dog's recovery, when I knew all the time he was lying hid under my garden mould. But I took it as a part of my punishment, and bore it all uncomplainingly. Practice even made me an adept in the art of consolation. I believe I really was a great comfort to them. I had hoped that they would soon get over the first bitterness of their loss, and that Bingo would be first replaced and then forgotten in the usual way, but there seemed no signs of this coming to pass. The poor colonel was too plainly fretting himself ill about it. He went pottering about forlornly, advertising, searching, and seeing people, but all, of course, to no purpose. And it told upon him. He was more like a man whose only son and heir had been stolen, than an Anglo-Indian officer who had lost a poodle, I had to affect the liveliest interest in all his inquiries and expeditions, and to listen to and echo the most extravagant eulogies of the departed, and the wear and tear of so much duplicity made me at last almost as ill as the colonel himself. I could not help seeing that Lillian was not nearly so much impressed by my elaborate concern as her relatives, and sometimes I detected an incredulous look in her frank brown eyes that made me very uneasy. Little by little, a rift widened between us, until, at last, in despair, I determined to know the worst before the time came when it would be hopeless to speak at all. I chose a Sunday evening, as we were walking across the green from the church in the golden dusk, and then I ventured to speak to her of my love. 
She heard me to the end, and was evidently very much agitated. At last she murmured that it could not be, unless— No, it never could be, now. Unless what? I asked. Lillian, Miss Roseblade, something has come between us lately. You will tell me what that something is, won't you? Do you want to know, really? she said, looking up at me through her tears. Then I'll tell you. It's... it's bingo. I started back, overwhelmed. Did she know all? If not, how much did she suspect? I must find out that at once. What about bingo? I managed to pronounce with a dry tongue. You never... I... You never loved him when he was here, she sobbed. You know you didn't. I was relieved to find it was no worse than this. No, I said candidly. I did not love Bingo. Bingo didn't love me, Lillian. He was always looking out for a chance of nipping me somewhere. Surely you won't quarrel with me for that. Not for that, she said. Only... "'Why do you pretend to be so fond of him now, and so anxious to get him back again? "'Uncle John believes you, but I don't. "'I can see quite well that you wouldn't be glad to find him. "'You could find him easily if you wanted to.' "'What do you mean, Lillian?' I said, hoarsely. "'How could I find him?' "'Again I feared the worst.' "'You're in a government office,' cried Lillian. "'And if you only chose, you could easily g get g government to find Bingo. "'What's the use of government if it can't do that? "'Mr. Travers would have found him long ago if I'd asked him.' "'Lillian had never been so childishly unreasonable as this before, "'and yet I loved her more madly than ever. "'But I did not like this allusion to Travers, a rising barrister,' who lived with his sister in a pretty cottage near the station, and had shown symptoms of being attracted by Lillian. He was away on circuit just then, luckily, but, at least, even he would have found it a hard task to find Bingo. There was comfort in that. "'You know that isn't just, Lillian,' I observed. "'But only tell me what you want me to do.' "'Bub, bub, but bring back Bingo, she said. Bring back Bingo, I cried in horror. But suppose I can't. Suppose he's out of the country, or dead. What then, Lillian? I can't help it, she said. But I don't believe he is out of the country, or dead. And while I see you pretending to Uncle that you cared awfully about him, and going on doing nothing at all, it makes me think you're not quite quite sincere, and I couldn't possibly marry anyone while I thought that of him, and I shall always have that feeling unless you find Bingo. It was of no use to argue with her. I knew Lillian by that time. With her pretty caressing manner she united a latent obstinacy which it was hopeless to attempt to shake. I feared, too, that she was not quite certain as yet whether she cared for me or not, and that this condition of hers was an expedient to gain time. I left her with a heavy heart. Unless I proved my worth by bringing back Bingo within a very short time, 
Travers would probably have everything his own way, and Bingo was dead. However, I took heart. I thought that perhaps, if I could succeed by my earnest efforts in persuading Lillian that I really was doing all in my power to recover the poodle, she might relent in time and dispense with his actual production. So, partly with this object, and partly to appease the remorse which now revived and stung me deeper than before, I undertook long and weary pilgrimages after office hours. I spent many pounds in advertisements. I interviewed dogs of every size, color, and breed, and, of course, I took care to keep Lillian informed of each successive failure. But still, her heart was not touched. She was firm. If I went on like that, she told me, I was certain to find Bingo one day. Then, but not before, would her doubts be set at rest. I was walking one day through the somewhat squalid district which lies between Bow Street and High Holborn, when I saw, in a small theatrical costumer's window, a handbill stating that a black poodle had followed a gentleman on a certain date, and if not claimed, and the finder remunerated before a stated time, would be sold to pay expenses. I went in and got a copy of the bill to show Lillian, and, although by that time I scarcely dared to look a poodle in the face, I thought I would go to the address given and see the animal, simply to be able to tell Lillian I had done so. The gentleman whom the dog had very unaccountably followed was a certain Mr. William Blagg, who kept a little shop near Endell Street, and called himself a bird-fancier, though I should scarcely have credited him with the necessary imagination. He was an evil-browed ruffian in a fur cap, with a broad, broken nose and little shifty red eyes, and after I had told him what I wanted, he took me through a horrible little den, stacked with piles of wooden, wire, and wicker prisons, each quivering with restless, twittering life, and then out into a backyard, in which were two or three rotten old kennels and tubs. "'That there's him,' he said, jerking his thumb to the farthest tub. "'Follered me all the way home from Kensington Gardens, he did. Kim out, will yer?' And out of the tub there crawled, slowly, with a snuffling whimper and a rattling of its chain, the identical dog I had slain a few evenings before. At least so I thought for a moment, and felt as if I had seen a spectre. The resemblance was so exact in size, in every detail, even to the little clumps of hair about the hind parts, even to the lop of half an ear, this dog might have been the doppelganger of the deceased Bingo. I suppose, after all, one black poodle is very like any other black poodle of the same size, but the likeness startled me. I think it was then that the idea occurred to me that here was a miraculous chance of securing the sweetest girl in the whole world, and at the same time atoning for my wrong by bringing back gladness with me to Shutter Garden. It only needed a little boldness, one last deception, 
and I could embrace truthfulness once more. Almost unconsciously, when my guide turned round and asked, "'Is that their dog yarn?' I said hurriedly, "'Yes, yes, that's the dog I want. That, that's Bingo. "'He don't seem to be a puttin' of himself out about seeing you again,' observed Mr. Blagg, as the poodle studied me with calm interest. "'Oh, he's not exactly my dog, you see,' I said. "'He belongs to a friend of mine.' He gave me a quick, furtive glance. "'Then maybe you're mistook about him,' he said. "'And I can't run no risks. "'I was a-going down in the country this year very evening "'to see a party as lives at Wisteria Willa. "'He's been a-advertising about a black poodle, he has. "'But look here,' I said, "'that's me.' "'He gave me a curious leer. "'No offence, you know, Governor,' he said, "'but I should wish for some evidence as to that "'afore I part with a valuable dog like this year." "'Well, I said, here's one of my cards. Will that do for you?' He took it and spelled it out with a pretense of great caution, but I saw well enough that the old scoundrel suspected that if I had lost a dog at all, it was not this particular dog. "'Ah,' he said, as he put it into his pocket, "'if I part with him to you, I must be cleared of all risks. I can't afford to get into trouble about no mistakes.' "'Unless you likes to leave him for a day or two, you must pay a cordon, you see.' I wanted to get the hateful business over as soon as possible. I did not care what I paid. Lillian was worth all the expense. I said I had no doubt myself as to the real ownership of the animal, but I would give him any sum in reason, and would remove the dog at once. And so we settled it. I paid him an extortionate sum, and came away with a duplicate poodle, a canine counterfeit, which I hoped to pass off at Shuttergard as the long-lost bingo. End of section 2